Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Small Differences. Uh, I'm Otis Anderson. We're missing Ian today. Ian is sick, and normally I would wait for Ian to not be sick, but we had a limited chance to talk to a, a really awesome guest and someone who I think has got a lot of insight into the subjects that keep coming up in our podcast. Um, please welcome Lauren Shirkus. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. Feel free to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do, what you're interested in. Sure. So I'm currently a data science manager at LinkedIn. Before this, I was a product manager on the data platform team at Airbnb. And before that, I was a data scientist at both Airbnb and LinkedIn. Um, and so my, my interest really spans uh, the space of data science and product science more um, on the analytics end of things as well as data infrastructure and where those two things can come together to create value for the company. You're, you're more of an Otis than an Ian, <laughs> one way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I think the, like, the transition from data science to data product manager is, like, is an interesting one. Like we've talked about that job title a couple of times. What was, what was, what was that like? It was fascinating. I think that data scientists have some natural advantages when they go into product management roles. Uh, being very quantitatively minded and very analytical gives you a natural edge and way to evaluate products and strategies that product managers coming from other backgrounds don't naturally have. However, typically... Uh, what I've seen from other peers who've made the jump and my experience myself was that it took a huge ramp up time when I jumped into product management to uh, build up the influence and leadership and communication skills that came a lot more naturally mm -hmm. to my peers who had come in through other routes. So like you probably like a lot of people on the product science side of things like have more developed communication skills than the typical data science, but it's not necessarily the same ones that allow you to succeed as a, as a product manager. Is that right? That's a good point. Because a very important component of doing product science is being able to convince your product partners and your engineering partners that the analysis that you did is worthwhile and that they should implement whatever your findings are in the product. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's true that it wasn't like a gulf to... Mm -hmm cross. Um, however, data scientists, even in the product space, are biased towards lengthy descriptions and <laughs> long answers exemplified by the one that I'm giving right now. And the biggest thing for me was learning how to be succinct mm -hmm. and to answer the question that was asked without a lot of superfluous details. So yeah, I've, I've never really thought of it that way. And I probably would, it would take a long time for me to eliminate my asterisks and parentheses <laughs> from, from a role like that. So you've done, you developed a lot of products that were internal facing, like they're for analysts or data scientists or someone in the analytical class of worker to produce data products that they can then show to a different audience. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And what, what did you find interesting about that? Like, what was surprising or, or challenging, do you think? And I think you could explain it to two different segments. Like, there's the data science side, where they probably know the workflow of analysis. And then there's the product management side, where they're like, oh, this is, you know, why is it different from developing any other product? Yeah, that's a great question. So, 
developing internal tools in general is interesting because your users are very present. Uh, when you're at a company that's even a few thousand people, mm-hmm. all of your users can still slack you their feedback and their thoughts and their ideas, which is both a luxury and a blessing, but also a little bit of a curse. <laughs> I, I can see that, yes. Yeah. So um, that that's what makes it very different from developing other like consumer-facing products. Um, and, and an interesting thing coming from a data science perspective where I was very focused on consumer-facing products and how do we understand what our users are doing based on the data of how they're using our products, mm-hmm. you mostly lack that when you're building internal tools. So it is a very different way of thinking about uh, how you get information on what you should build. It's much less uh, based on usage data and trying to infer what your users want based on their actions versus having a set of users who um, you can you can go to. Like, I, I sort of tiered my users as like... Um, folks who were very interested in being involved in the discussion and development and design of our product, those who were active users um, but weren't necessarily as interested in being engaged, and then a third class of potential users who weren't really using the products yet and spent time with my users in that order. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the other cool thing about building internal products is that you can leverage those first two classes of users to influence the the people sort of at the next level and bring them on board and and get them engaged with your product. So you can you can really use those power users to invest in other people. Yes. Yeah. So uh, like I often wonder about the like one there's it's very it seems very much like a two-sided like developing for a two-sided marketplace where like the analogy being like Airbnb has people who rent their houses and then people uh, whom they rent their houses to. Mm-hmm. You have data scientists or analysts, and then you have the people that are going to consume the, those analysis up. Do you, did you have like a persona for each of those and kind of an idea of like what they could do for yes. your data product? Yes, absolutely. And that's a really important consideration, especially when you're building data products, because, and I guess especially for analytics use cases. Because those two sets of users are very different in their skill sets and also the angles with which they interact with their products. Because essentially, when you're building an analytics tool, you're building for a data scientist who is going to use your tool to build for someone less technical. You need to, you need to think about that end user, that less technical user, the product or design person. But first... You need to get the people who are the intermediate builders, the Mm -hmm. data scientists, on board. Similar to uh, if you're building Airbnb, if you don't have any listings on your platform, there's nothing that guests can book to stay overnight. Similarly, if a data scientist doesn't use your product to build their dashboard or machine learning model or whatever it is, 
there's no one else who can then consume that information. So while it's really important to think about that end user and their capabilities, I believe that upfront, especially in the early stages of development, it's much more worthwhile to focus on your producers, your data scientists or analysts who are going to be using that product uh, to create inventory, so to speak, that the the less technical consumers can then use. I think I think that's interesting. So you upfront you have to get the data scientists and, and tool builders on board. You have to like tell them, you have to convince them that this is some sort of process that they will like. Yes. <laughs> but once they're in that process, I feel like they're willing to do stuff, right? They're like they have the technical ability and um, like it's it's their job, literally. Whereas like the the consumers, like it's often like do they like they may not really want to use data. They like like you may have to like do more persuasion of them once like that marketplace is started, right? Like definitely at the beginning, you can't you can't do this without the tool builders jumping on board. But I feel like the lock-in must be better. How, do, how does that take feel to you? That is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I think it depends. This is where maybe it's helpful to think about some more specific products that I we might be talking about generating adoption of. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're building a dashboarding tool, um, you need to think about the people who are creating the dashboard. Those are your data scientists and the people who are going to consume the dashboard. So let's just say a designer or product manager for simplicity. And I think in that sort of scenario, it's important to get early input and investment from your end consumers as well, because no matter how good the thing is that your data scientists build, if your product managers or designers think that the dashboard is ugly and unreadable, they're never going to get value out of it and you're never going to get traction or adoption. Whereas the space that I worked in was a little upstream of that. So the products that I focused on at Airbnb uh, were about shaping the data appropriately and making it easy for consumption in downstream dashboarding tools that for the most part already existed. And so in those scenarios, it wasn't quite as important upfront to get the end consumer's bought in because they were already using mm-hmm. some of these downstream tools. So we heavily focused in those cases on making the lives of our data scientists really easy so that they wanted to use these tools that enforced best practices, that created high-quality dashboards in the dashboarding tools they were already using. Then once we had that up and running, we were able to take a step back and look at this downstream dashboarding experience, the experience of finding the important metrics that you need to understand your business and say, wow, this is really broken. Um, And what can we do to fix this? And then have a completely separate sprint and team focused on solving those problems. So for the particular products you were working on, they're pointed at data scientists. They're like they're definitely like pipeline products, right? Yeah. They're, how do I how do I make it easier for you to produce the this content that goes downstream into dashboards and reports? So like, were you very focused on like I, f- I feel like there's a lot of trade offs between 
ease of adoption and then the quality of the data. Like that seems like a really difficult uh, thing to necessarily uh, manage. I I think it's not always the case that there is going to be a trade-off between Mm -hmm. quality and ease of adoption. Um, And the best tools are going to be the ones that make doing the high quality thing easy. It just requires a lot of thought. When you're working in the big data space, there's a lot of constraints uh, in terms of what's feasible to compute and what is available at any uh, given moment for the data set that you're trying to create and like how do you manage dependencies and all of these sort of more more difficult things to balance than maybe sometimes in a traditional software engineering product. And as long as upfront you've carefully thought through those implications, as well as the downstream use case for the, the data that you're trying to build, then it's possible to make effective trade-offs and balances there and then make the experience easy for the data scientist or engineer who is going to be using that product to not have to think about those implications themselves and therefore create higher quality data sets or dashboards as a result. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think it, it sounds like your 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 job as the tooling like the the tooling product manager is to build in intelligent defaults, like good, yeah. good defaults that like that's a great way to put them. make the make the safe thing the easy thing to do, and not necessarily make it just easier to build the pipelines. It is like to make it easier to like to to be lazy and also still build good pipelines. <laughs> yes, and and I think that is a great way of putting it. That's a great way of how I thought about my job. So. Um, I don't think I've actually said this yet, but the product space that I worked on at Airbnb, we called data engineering infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the set of tools that we built on top of tools like Airflow and schedulers and what people think of as quote unquote ETL, um, but are actually just schedulers and orchestrators. Right. Um, There's no actual T really going on there. Right. Um, And... And how do we make using those products um, seamless for for the people who uh, need to create data and need to create things that are semantically useful for your business? Um, Because while Airflow is super easy to use and has, as a result, has had this like amazing adoption curve, right? It also is incredibly flexible, which if you are a data scientist who just needs to create a data set for your model or for your dashboard or whatever this like niche product is, it's quick and easy to throw together a pipeline, but also very easy to have something that's unmaintainable in the long run that has no idea of best practices and you know, six months from now, your dashboard's broken or your model has mm. drifted and there's no way to tell the, what the cause of that is. I mean, I think this is a thing we've we've touched on before in the show is like we, you know, data scientists write pipelines a lot. 
a lot of times you need engineers in your pipelines. Like that doesn't need to be the only thing your engineers or your data engineers are doing, but like in order to make sure that that, that code is robust, that that's like, that it has all of the proper like engineering traits to it. And this is a big challenge for data pipelines in general, because even when you have engineers or data engineers involved in that process, as a field, data engineering just isn't as mature as traditional software engineering, where across the industry, there aren't really as many accepted best practices and testing packages and frameworks. And how do you even think about what it means to do a regression test on a data set? Like, well, yeah, like we, we did unit, we did a lot of unit testing on a previous job of mine. And I often wonder like, well, I really want an integration test for this. And there's not... Uh, or I want to write the unit test at the pipeline level. And I think I only saw any other engineer say, like, I've got pipeline level unit tests last year. Yeah. Which Airflow has been around for a long time <laughs> at this point. I may not seem like it. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, like the, the pipeline is like probably the appropriate unit to test most of the time. And that's like a fairly recent development. Yeah. And not only that, like you want to, you want to test your transforms in your pipeline, Mm -hmm. but you also want to test the resulting data because even if your pipeline transforms execute exactly the way that you want, Mm -hmm. you want the data that flows in could be shifting over time. Yeah. yeah. And I, you need to be able to detect that too and so it's this just whole added layer of complication. Um, and I, th- I think that this is where you need to not just have uh, smart engineers in developing your data, uh, but also where we're, we're seriously lacking some tooling in the industry mm-hmm. and where marrying, um, involving data engineers and having a clear data strategy with good data tooling uh, will hopefully eventually bring us to a much more mature state. Yeah, definitely. So I definitely meant like you need to have engineers working on the pipeline so they build good tools so that when the people that actually need to do the, the, the work every time you need to build a pipeline, they're making that, like they're making those intelligent choices whether they realize it or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And a lot of... I think a lot of companies right now are trying to figure out what this strategy should be. Like, how heavily do you invest in building these kinds of tools to solve this problem versus how heavily do you invest in hiring an army of data engineers Mm -hmm. to build your data sets? And my personal bias is that you kind of need both, that at the end of the day, if you have an army of data engineers uh, who are all going to build data sets, like for the most part, they're still going to do a great job because they are actually specialized as opposed to just having your data scientists building all of your pipelines, which a lot of companies are also doing and is creating issues. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there are companies who are saying, well, can't we just build our way out of this? Can't we just build a ton of tools that make all these best practices simple and easy so that like our data scientists can just throw a pipeline in there? Um, and that helps a lot. It probably cuts down the number of data engineers you need by 50% or more, but you still need someone to be able to think through the semantics of data capture and modeling and, uh, like your, your end to end data transformation strategy. Yeah. I feel like the best that can give you is a data pipeline that is valid, but not necessarily sound. 
Yeah. And like, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So like, I think your testimony that like, you can't really tool your way out of not having a data strategy is valuable. Like you're, you know, you're one of the people that I most associate with thinking through like what data tools can do for you, but that's like, it's not, it's not complete, right? Like you need to have an attitude about like what, what data can do for your company? How does it get produced? I often think as a data scientist, knowing how you get data is the actual magic of the of the profession and thinking through how it's collected and what that results in. So let's talk about data strategy. What does a business get out of having a data strategy and can kind of walk through like what an example of, of what a data strategy would be for a company? When a company is developing a data strategy, it's important to think about what is the use case for your data. A lot of times that can be for a machine learning model or a recommender in the product that is serving your end consumers. A lot of times that can be for internal purposes, for analytics, for business intelligence, and the implications of the data you need to collect and things like information leakage in your pipelines, as well as the availability of that data are very different for those different use cases. So keeping that in mind is important for how you decide to capture the data initially in your product, uh, how you transform it, what technologies you choose to transform it. Do you care about real-time transformations? Do you care about uh, batch? Do you need it to arrive at 9 a.m. every day for when your execs get in to like look at their dashboards? All of those things uh, are important when you're developing your data strategy. And I think it's important to actually think about the data itself that you produce as a product that meets uh, certain specifications based on your use case and the personas of those users, whether it is those execs or the machine learning engineers or the designers. Yeah, I think I can. I, I think we can walk through a, a good example. I think of engineering pipelines as needing low latency data almost all the time, right? Like yes. you don't you don't care what the history of the the user is. You care whether or not they're authorized right now, and like completeness, readability, human readability. Those are less important aspects. So, like when you're capturing stuff for machine learning, those are more similar to like the engineering pipeline, although. I think human readability often is pretty useful in, in those as well. But for, say, the product, like if you're doing analytics or product uh, decisions on it, then often real-time or low-latency data does not does not matter. And in fact, like uh, whom the gods would destroy, they first give real-time data <laughs> is probably a good byword for that. So you can think of having two separate, like thinking about those two use cases of machine learning versus like, say, A-B testing or something like that as having two distinct um, requirements on what kind of data that you're going to have. Yes. And that that is a latency and availability uh, are one key feature that would distinguish whether that would distinguish data between machine learning use cases and say an A-B testing use case. And another feature that I don't think folks think through as much is uh, what machine learning folks call information leakage. 
um, and what analysts call understanding your users. Um, so for example, I, in an A-B testing use case, I really care about knowing who it was that saw the treatment versus control. So if I have a user coming to my website uh, and they are logged out, uh, my raw data, my logs might not have their user ID in that, which for a machine learning use case, you don't want information about like who this user is bleeding into training your model. Because when they show up to your website, you don't actually have that information on who that user is to give them the more personalized recommendation. Mm -hmm. But in an A-B testing use case, they might log in two minutes later. Um, and the experience that they had while they were logged out, the experiment that you served them when they were logged out, can influence their logged in behavior. And you want to measure that downstream impact. So you want to join in as much information as you have about who are these users and really identify that that person who land, landed on your site as a logged out user is the same one who then, uh, you know, if your Airbnb went and made a booking. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that difference is also really important in how you design your pipelines um, and how you capture your data. Uh, yeah, I, you definitely want to at least choose when to ignore the the data that you like, the, the extra data, right? Like if you were worried about it having selection bias or something like that, like for the, the A-B testing exactly. use case. But yeah, that's, that is a, that is really a really key point. And you, the, you can't, your machine can't exercise that choice when you're doing a machine learning thing. It has to be syntactical. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. That that's a that's a great example. This is a hard requirement, right? So thinking about your data, at like having a strategy about your data, it's one of those sentences that buries the complexity and difficulty of what you're asking. I think it is like the weight loss advice of like, <laughs> you know, it's pretty simple. You just eat you eat less and exercise more. But having a data strategy means thinking about your data, but. Also, like you can, it's not something a lot of companies do. A lot of data is exhaust at a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of companies. And also, a lot of times people are like, should I log this? If you ask that of every single thing that you're doing, like that's, a, that's, a, that's adding a lot of requirements to your, your projects, right? Yeah, like, and that's huge mental overload for your engineering team to ask that question every single time. Uh, it's... They'll then defer that to your data scientists who will be like, of course, log all the things, but don't really understand the implications for the the time of the engineers or also might not have uh, the context themselves to say, like, how how should we log this or this rather the data modeling skills themselves to say, how should we log this so that you know, it's not just useful for this experiment we're running now, but it's also going to be useful in six months when this product is ramped up to the entire world. Um, and then it can also be really expensive. If you just log all the things, you have to maintain the infrastructure uh, to support 
that volume of data flowing through and you're either going to be spending a lot on storage, even though storage is really cheap, or you then need to think about retention policies. <laughs> and it just leads to this giant cascade of costs for the company if you don't have a clear strategy of how you're going to do this up front. I feel like I've heard the phrase storage is cheap at every company and every company we've like deleted or stopped blogging events in order to save money. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I would have a hard time managing the, that, that trade-off, right? Uh, the what should we log like I would probably be risk averse myself and be like, ah, log everything and then try to tell to leave some story behind of why why you're logging it in some way. But I, I can see that that's like that that's me being a data scientist and not knowing like not knowing the engineering consequences of what I do. Yeah. So I've I've seen this go go well and I've seen this go poorly. And I think in the scenarios where I have seen a logging strategy work best, though I would still not say this is ideal, um, is that you have both a log everything strategy and a selective logging strategy. Okay. So what this means is that you have some standard events. So first of all, I'm making an assumption here that your logging framework is schema uh, enforced, which is not actually a fair assumption in most places, um, but is increasingly becoming the trend. Um, so let, let's just make an assumption off the bat that okay. your logging framework is schema enforced. We could talk about the importance of that afterwards. Mm -hmm. Then you create a universal schema or a default schema um, that is just for like every click, basically. And the only choice your engineer has to make when they're building something new is naming that button. And so like uh, an example of this is like what pages the button on gets automatically mapped no matter what. That's like that's the schema enforced part of it, right? Yeah. Like there's every click has a user ID, like it has some either numeric or or uh, descriptive representation of where the website was from, and then there's the, the name of the button. Correct. Yeah. The most basic information that you need in order to distinguish that, like, yeah, somebody clicked this button. Mm -hmm. We know, like you said, we know what page it's on, we know who did it, we know what time they did it. Right, and then you would instrument that in a place where every time action occurs, the log gets sent no matter, like, the engineers maybe don't even have to don't even have to write new code. Like it just gets fed into that function and yes. the, uh, the, the basic schema enforced logging occurs. Correct. But you, that's not uh, like, that's probably not enough logging for all of the things that you could think of that you like the critical questions you need to answer about the business. Exactly. What that does give you though, is let's say you're throw, building some new feature out there. You don't know if you want to invest in it long-term, you can get a lot of information for A-B testing cheaply uh, and don't have to invest engineer, data scientist time up front. And you can also make some assumptions about the retention policy for this. Like you probably don't need more than a year of data, even that might be generous depending on your company's context. Um, but if you do want to invest in something long-term, it's good to have a, and frequently required to have something that is able to capture a lot more information. So for example, uh, 
if you need to, once again, I, Airbnb is a good example if you need to measure the concept of booking. Uh-huh. Um, it is a good example. And a lot of people <laughs> use the product. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you need to measure the concept of a booking, you don't want to just know how many people clicked the book it button. You also need to know like which listing they booked, maybe who was the host of that listing, uh, what was the price on that day, etc. Um, and so you want all that context also in the log that you're capturing about mm-hmm. that booking. And so then you have a process where your engineer and your data scientist and your machine learning engineer and everybody who might care about that data sit down, can agree on a schema. The schema you can think of as uh the equivalent of an API if you're building a service, it is a contract that everybody agrees on and says, the engineer says, this is the data that I can provide you. The data scientist or machine learning engineer says, this is the data that I need to consume for this application. And then hopefully also if you have a schema enforced uh, logging system, then there are ways to track and notify downstream consumers if that's changing Um, even if that's just like mandatory reviewers on a PR in your schema repo. Yeah, I wonder if that, I wonder how many companies have that. I I wonder too. I don't know. I don't have enough data to say like what fraction of companies do and don't, but Mm -hmm. I, a lot of larger companies, if they don't already have schema enforced logging systems are actively moving in that direction. Um, particularly companies that are choosing to invest more in the tooling side rather than the army of data engineers side of the equation we were talking about before. Yeah, so like that's a good example where making intelligent decisions at the top of where you're, what you're logging can save you, either it can save you data quality problems, it can fix data quality problems you just can't fix through tooling, right? Like if you don't have, if you haven't logged the thing right. that you need to analyze the experiment, there's no, there's no fixing that. Yeah. Um, can't tool your way through that problem. But um, you can build a tool that helps you once you've made that decision to log mm-hmm. to keep that log meeting certain constraints. Right. It does still seem like you should be biased. You should, like, the if you're a risk-averse data person, like, you should be biased towards logging more things. But maybe you should just, maybe it's like you should be, like, the retention policy should be uh, one where, like, yeah, but, like, if it doesn't seem like we're using it, like, we, we would throw it out. I, I agree. But it, if you have to make that active choice of, like, what does the schema look like and what additional information we need every single time we need to log something yeah. it's going to slow down development yeah. horrendously um and n- naming events is hard oh yes <laughs> <laughs> i really think that it, it is something we should spend a little time on like being too specific in a name is actually one of the worst things you can do to an event because it like, takes away the power to just group simple things together and get counts of them Right. Like if you have to like if you have three or four different event names from the same thing because you've added like variables to the name of the event instead of just keeping the name the name, then it becomes tricky for people who aren't literally like they aren't privy to how that event got created to pick out the things that they care about from the from the schema. Yeah, that's a great point. So the the two biggest categories of products that I worked on when I was at Airbnb was uh, our data capture systems and uh, a metrics framework. 
as a product manager, I ended up finding myself spending 50% of my time or more on helping people name stuff correctly, whether that was like enforcing that in the product or developing processes or early on in both of these sets of products. I made myself mandatory reviewer on every single schema oh, wow. or every single metric created. That's a lot of work for Lauren. It was a lot of work, um, but it was incredibly informative as a product manager to just see how people were using the product and see what we needed to build. It obviously didn't last long. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, would, I, would, I would not call that a scalable approach. No, I, but I, I guess in the Reed Hoffman likes to talk about like doing things that don't scale and then figuring out how to do it later. Like mm-hmm. it was a worthwhile investment up front. <laughs> F- figure out how to do it later is another one of those <laughs> phrases that buries a lot of complexity yes. <laughs> because a lot of times doing the things that you that doesn't scale, and I'm sure Reed Hoffman touches on this, <laughs> sets up the expectation that you are going to continue doing the thing that doesn't scale. And sometimes you cannot figure out a way how to do <laughs> the thing that does scale. Yeah. Um, and... And, and so, for example, in, the, in those two cases, in our logging system, I ended up deciding it wasn't worth it to, like, figure out a way to scale that. We um, built in some uh, features into the, like, um, validation step of checking stuff into the schema repository mm. to be like... Oh, like a linter. Yeah, yeah, actually. That's th- a great idea. It was basically a linter for your schemas to say, like... Uh, do you have anything egregiously wrong in mm-hmm. the names of your fields? Okay, if not, like, we're we're not going to spend so much time. But in the metric case, because, once again, thinking about those end users as your product people, designers, and in this case, executives, too, who really need to be able to trust the thing that's coming out of that, um, naming is critical to... The success of that product. So the way we scaled that up was we then trained a small team of data scientists on how do you name things appropriately. And you had to, in order to merge your metric to this metric repository, you had to get sign off from one of those people. Mm -hmm. So you developed subject matter experts on naming Mm -hmm. things. Yes. (laughs) that's excellent. I I think the like the other thing that that kind of touches on is and it's really hard to build this into a data product is knowing how something is collected is really essential to like you being able to use it. Yes. And I think all of my highlights of my career have been from times when I knew how something was collected and I was like, everybody stand back. Don't touch that. It's evil. All of the worst parts of my career were the things where I was like, oh, this says revenue on it. Must mean <laughs> revenue. <laughs> um, so like, how do you like, do you, did you, for the products you built, were you able to incorporate that into, into the things that, uh, that you built or like, to me, that's the real struggle and that's the documentation that's never there. Yeah. Is what's the origin story of this data? Also a big tooling gap that in theory we could build to solve for data lineage like that. Mm -hmm. Um, In the cases of the specific products I was building, we were sort of working from these two ends of the spectrum from metrics repository that shapes the data for final consumption on one end and the logging framework that captures the data on the other end. And trying to move them towards each other slowly, mm-hmm. um, 
I have since left the team, so I don't really know the state of those products right now. Um, but we were looking towards building in lineage services and uh, building in ways of just easily taking the schema that you created in your logging framework um, and translating it into a metric in the metric framework. And so it would have that explicit linkage. Mm-hmm. There's sort of like a smart and good way to do those things that requires high investment in sort of every layer of your ETL stack. Sounds expensive. It is pretty expensive. You can do some more hacky things where like, say, if you're using a scheduler that handles dependencies appropriately, mm-hmm. you can like parse all of your uh, like airflow jobs and figure out, oh, we have like a hive partition sensor here and this is the table name that it says that it's pulling from. So like we can kind of stitch these things together with like some level of accuracy. And so as a first pass to solve this problem, that's kind of what we did. That's reasonable. I, I we I developed a like I helped Microsoft develop an internal tool that was basically write SQL into a web page, mm-hmm. and we had the luxury of knowing what the ETL like having links to the ETL system that you could then put into the the, the web tool so that you could look at the ta- like it would parse which tables you're referring to in your query and then it would list them as a link and you could click through to the ETL system which was similar to similar to Airflow and see what the dependencies were that's cool and that way you could you could get like not like Descartes style down the first principles like lineage but like you could you could have an idea of like at least what the next layer up was on your your data lineage yeah that that's really neat um, even that I think doesn't exist in many places and would just be a huge step forward. I've never seen it since. <laughs> and I, I wonder like, because most people are using airflow, I wonder if that's even a, a thing you could do unless you knew, um, like, unless you connected your, your ETL, like you built an integration with your like query tool or, or whatever to and, that. And since most people are using off the shelf query tools, or notebooks or something like that. Like it doesn't doesn't seem like a thing that's in the offing. Yeah, I I think that's probably true. The but within Airflow itself, like if something that is a common problem is that you have like a DAG that creates a table and then some other completely separate DAG uses that table to create something else and mm-hmm. then you're uh, data warehouse becomes this like tangled mess of spaghetti pipelines yes. and you have to like trace back through like several DAGs to figure out like what the data source was. Mm-hmm. And so even if you limited the scope of the problem to just Airflow um, and what is maintained by Airflow. Still, you, it's still too complicated. It's, it's still really complicated and it depends on like how you, you are using Airflow and have set up dependency management and like, once again, Airflow is super flexible and awesome, um, but for ETL specifically, like, lets you gives you too much freedom in oh, my yeah. opinion. No, I think that that's um, a general that's a like that's a general problem, right? It's yeah. Like the, if the more powerful you make something, the the worse. It, like the what is it? If you give people the option to make the stupid choice, some of them are going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> and but but you could still probably get like. A 50% or 80% solution that would still deliver a lot of value. 
even if you just scope the problem to Airflow, I think that's that would be a great investment for Airflow team to make. Somebody go out there and make this investment, people. Please. <laughs> Please. We're begging you. I wanted to build off something that you said earlier, which was that you felt your greatest achievements came when you really intimately knew the data and the lineage of that data. And I think that that is incredibly important for data scientists, that you have both the hard skills to be able to read the pipeline and maybe even read the login code itself, as well as the soft skills to be able to influence the engineers to capture and transform the data appropriately and to have those conversations. And unfortunately, whether it's because of interest and uh, expectations of individual data scientists or the incentives set up by data science orgs, so many data scientists just don't want to do that work. They want somebody else to solve that upstream for them so that they have nice, pristine data to do their like fancy analytics or machine learning on top of. I, I, I mean, I think I blame companies and hiring process for this more. Like, I think if you, if you go to apply for a data, a vanilla data science job, you will be asked to tune a parameter on a model and interpret its effect on a confusion matrix, or they, or maybe you won't realize that's what they're asking you to do, but that's what they're asking you to do, and that sets up the expectation that you are a model building endpoint, like you you take an endpoint and build a model off of it, and that is what people want to do based off of like what they're like what they're asked about in their interviews and what the like what people even build like they'll even go and build rubrics around promotion and most of them aren't like do you understand our data sources <laughs> in fact I'm not sure how I would evaluate someone on that as a manager yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> um, so yeah I, I, I that's what I think that does come from I agree but then you can take that one more step upstream to say that uh, when companies are setting up these hiring practices and these interview processes, they're doing so in a way to attract what they think of as top talent, uh, which the preferences of those top talent uh, may be coming out of like what boot camps are selling or uh, the hype is that like the job is about building yeah. fancy models and not as much about like intimately understanding your business and your data and using it appropriately. Oh boy, I get to talk about labor <laughs> economics. Um, so there's two, like I would break this down into two, two parts. Like one, there's a measurement problem. I think the modeling, are you good at interpreting and tuning a, a parameter is actually like very, like it, it takes you a few minutes to figure out whether someone interpreted and did the thing. And it's very easy to compare one candidate to another. And the question of like, how would you figure out how we collected this data is not like one where you can very easily compare two candidates to each other. But there's another bit that I think you're in, in, like getting at, with, which is the candidates themselves preferences. And we think about this in labor econ. We have like the, this model of specific human capital and general human capital. I've talked about it on previous episodes a little bit. But math and probability and in a certain sense modeling is a general piece of general human capital, meaning it's useful in every job, right? Like there's no there's no data science jobs where those things aren't going to come in handy, even if you're not using them all of the time. Sure. The 
specific, like the the soft skills that we talk of, there's an aspect of that that is like general human capital where like, you know, if you're pretty good at navigating the politics and language of one company, there's a chance that there's a pretty good chance you'll be able to learn in other companies. But what you have learned at that other company, you can't take with you, right? Like mm-hmm. it does not like it is specific to that company and not general across companies. So that like the other like the the whammy on this is that most of the time companies pay for general human capital like if they can measure that in an interview and they do not pay for specific human capital because they feel like they you can learn that on the job or it is not like it is not like what you've already done is not valuable to them so like the the data scientists that are setting up these things probably have something similar to that that explicit model which is like if we are like want the best data scientists, we should select on general human capital, even though that is like misleading to the the actual job description and what's going to be valuable when you're doing your job. That makes sense. And if that's the case, then perhaps companies should be taking time either in their interview process or somewhere in the recruiting process of doing some expectation setting of what a, an actual day to day looks like. And then when those new data scientists come in, spending a lot of time focusing up, how do you build those uh, softer skills, uh, those company-specific contextual things right up front? And now, actually, as a data science manager, I realize that that is what I spend most of my time on with my reports, is like, they, they have the skills to build awesome reports and analytics, but... Uh, what they typically need help on is the business context. Uh, how do you communicate this to your partners? How do you work with the engineers upstream to get the data that you need? Yeah, so that like I think you can think of the data science manager's job as like hiring people that are more quantitative than they are, and then <laughs> convincing them not to spend all of their time doing that. <laughs> Yeah, especially for me coming from back to data science from a product manager role, my biggest fear was, holy cow, I don't remember how to do anything quantitative anymore. And realizing that I don't really need to in a lot of cases. I, I mean, I think I've spent the last couple of years as an IC after managing for a while. And I don't like... I think there's definitely problems that I am like really on. Like I'm really good after doing IC practice at doing binomial probability because I just basically use it almost every day. But yeah, as your career gets longer, I don't feel like if you're not doing combinatorial, like you're not using combinatorics in analysis and you're like not, you don't get more comfortable with that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, I I feel like the longer your career is, the more you end up like, like the worse you are at being a generalist in in some sense, uh, because like you, like the, the thing that prepares you generally for things in school and school gets farther and farther behind you. That feels very accurate. (laughs) Okay. I, we, we have talked for a while. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of great stuff here. Lauren, I really want to thank you for joining me and talking about this stuff. Um, sad that Ian missed it, but like I thought this was a really great topic. And I think we we really summarized well a lot of things that have come up, like threads that came up through conversations. So thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been super fun. Awesome. If you have any feedback for us, um, you can go email us at feed.back at smalldivcast.com. We're on Twitter at of differences. 
If you want to donate to the Patreon account, you certainly can. Um, That is also of differences on patreon.com. And stay safe out there.